All right. Well, we're getting back into our sermon series titled Living in the Light, where we're looking at uh, one of John's letters. It's 1 John. So I know we don't have pew Bibles, but feel free to open up your phone. And uh, we use the English Standard Version of the Bible. It's going to be put up on the screen there, but it's also nice to have it open in front of you as I'm preaching. You're able to look at the text, right? And so um, I'm also going to jump around to another passage in 1 John, so it might be good to have your devices open, and of course, at home, grab your Bible uh, and join on in. Today, we have a spectacular passage that we're going to look at, and it, it forces us to answer the most profound and important question you could ever answer. And the question is this, do you know God? Do you know God? And when I say know God, I'm not speaking about knowing of God. It's not, a, it's not an intellectual knowing that John gets at in our passage. It's a relational knowing of God. See, I have certain thoughts concerning Queen Elizabeth because, uh, well, over the last few months, I've watched a few episodes of The Crown on Netflix. Perhaps you have as well. So I, in a sense, I know her. But... I cannot walk into Buckingham Palace, and probably neither can you, and have a friendly conversation with the Queen of England. I just don't know her relationally. And so with this in mind, the question again is, do you know God? In the passage we're about to read, the Apostle John gives us two tests to see if we know God. The first is the test of obedience, and the second is the test of love. Let's see if you can pick up on them as I read them and apply them to your life. Our passage is 1 John chapter 2, verse, verses 3 through 11. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But... Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word has come to us. It is true. It is alive. Um, it is able to transform and shape your people as your spirit operates within us through your word. And so we pray for that work today. We need to grow in our knowledge of you. Our love needs to be more and more perfected. And right now we ask for that. Amen. I consider myself uh, 
spiritual person, but I'm just not into organized religion. Have you ever heard somebody say something like that? Maybe, maybe you used to think that way, or perhaps you still do. The church and organized religion are not very popular these days, especially in America where we, where we idolize rugged individualism. In a culture like ours, Christianity can appear, well, dry and boring. The old organized religion is just another ball and chain, dragging people down with all this talk about obedience to the deity. Do you guys remember Jesse Ventura, the Navy SEAL turned pro wrestler turned governor of Minnesota? <laughs> Which proves in America you can pretty much do anything. Um, in referring to Christianity, he famously um, opined that, that Christianity is a, is, is a is a crutch for weak people. Perhaps you've felt or said something like that yourself. I know that's what I used to believe when I was in my 20s. I thought religious people, and Christians in particular, were weak and foolish for allowing themselves to be shackled to commandments of some deity you can't even see. You should know I've come to think differently. In our passage, John is teaching us that when we come to truly know God, we see things differently. When God's mercy and grace come to us through the gift of his son, Jesus, we are brought into a relationship with God. He is no longer an intellectual proposition, nor is he some distant deity. He is now our heavenly father, whom we know and whom we love. And this makes all the difference in the world. Now, this gospel message was being challenged by outsiders. As a reminder of what John is going through, he, he is sending this letter to a number of churches that he shepherded in Asia Minor. Early Gnostic teachings was being pressed into these churches, and they promised secret knowledge. They promised that they, if you could just join their little group they would give you intellectual knowledge about God that no one else had. These Gnostics, also like uh, the Greco-Romans of their day, had this view that the body was bad, it was corrupt, it was only the spirit or the soul that was good. Therefore, God isn't really concerned about anything you do in your body, so long as you are sincere or live a decent life or you're true to yourself. But people who have come to know God live differently. How so? John gives us two tests to determine if we really know God. We'll spend our time looking at them. The first test is the obedience test. And the second test is the love test. And so as we look at these tests, let me ask you again, do you know God? The first test is the obedience test. And what we see here, the big idea here is this. Those who truly know God, delight to live in obedience to his commandments. John makes this clear in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. To keep God's commands means that, that, that it, it means to treasure them, to delight in them, to long to obey them. And if you know God, this is true of you. You delight, you long to obey God's commands. Now, 
there were people who were infiltrating those ancient churches back then who were saying otherwise. They taught that it matters not how you live your life. God isn't concerned with your attitudes or your behavior. Just live life however you want. And in the end, it really doesn't matter what you've done. So long as you're in your head, you have the right intellectual thought. And John has a harsh rebuke for such teaching. Look at what he says in verses 4 and 5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. This is very rich language. Let's get into it. First, if you say you know God and you don't keep his commandments, you are a liar. Why is that? Because you don't really know God. Because if you knew God, you would love him and you would long to keep his commands. Recently, I think you guys know, uh, I went and visited my brother in California. That's where I had the bicycle crash where I went flying over the handlebars at like 40 miles an hour and broke all kinds of things. Uh, anyway, prior to that, uh, I went to a dinner with my brother and it was a very, very small affair because of the COVID reality. And two of my brother's friends, let's call them Don and Carol, invited us over. It was Carol's birthday. And it was just a small affair, just my brother and I and her family of five. And they were so hospitable. They were so friendly. It was really great to get to know them. I'd heard about them many, many times. And um, earlier in the day, because I knew I was going to dinner with them, I prayed for my brother's salvation. His name is John. You can pray for him as well. And I prayed for a chance to share the gospel with Don and Carol. And it was an answer to prayer as I'm sitting next to my brother at the meal. Uh, Carol turned to me with this look of confusion on her face. And she's like, so you're a pastor? She just couldn't figure it out. This is Silicon Valley, mind you. After sharing my Christian testimony and how Christ forgave my sins, I could tell that there was still one big issue that she faced. Basically, her objection was this, was was how can it be that Jesus forgives your sin? All of it, like all of it. To her, it seemed like such a scam. It made no sense to her that if there is a God, that he would be so reckless with his forgiveness. God forgave all your sins, past, present, and future. Well, then why don't you just go out and sin all you want? It makes no sense. How would you respond? As she said that, I thought of Romans 6, where Paul addresses that. What shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Absolutely not. What does Paul say? How could we who have died to sin still live in it? And I, as I was thinking that through, I'm like, yeah, that might just be a little bit confusing for her. So instead, I based my response on our text this morning, which, by the way, I was studying. I was supposed to preach this two weeks ago. Essentially, here's the answer I gave her. I assured her that no genuine Christian lives as if God has given her or him a get-out-of-hell-free card. At least they shouldn't, though sadly some do. What God gives us is not a license to go in sin. It is a welcome into a personal relationship. Listen to which she said. This is interesting. Is it one of those things where you have to be on the inside before it makes sense? I thought to myself, this woman is really perceptive. 
But I did tell her, not necessarily. Let me give you an example from everyday life. If you love someone, say your dad, and he loves you very much, like he's a good dad, not a bad dad, and he asks you to do something, my kids are here, <laughs> um, and he asks you to do something, if you disobey him, he will continue to love you and forgive you unconditionally. Why? Because that's what loving dads do. But typically, what you want to do is to please your dad because you love him. And so there are times when you may disobey your dad, but ultimately your heart's desire is to obey him because he loves you and you love him. I explain that is what, it's, what being a Christian is like. It is a loving relationship. And the last thing you want is a get-out-of-hell-free card. We've experienced God's love, and we love him back. So we don't want to sin. We want to honor our Heavenly Father. Carol nodded as if a light bulb had gone off, but she wasn't quite yet ready to step into the light. This is what John is getting at in our passage. Just as a child who has a good earthly father cannot say she knows her father while living in disobedience to him, so too no human being can say they know God and live contrary to his good commandments. And think this through. Please know this. Give some thought to this. God's commands are good. They are absolutely good. There's not a single one of them that's bad or wrong. One of my seminary professors was David Jones. And in his marvelous book on ethics, he wrote these words about God's moral law, his rules, his commands. Listen to what he writes. The moral law is what it is because God wills human beings to be conformed to his nature. Does that make sense? God's nature is beautifully good, and ours is not. And God has given us his commands because in love, he wants us to be conformed to his good nature. This is a good thing that he's doing for us. His words, his commands are good. So the law of God is good. It comes to us from a loving God who cares for us and desires our best. The law of God isn't given to us to, to turn us into something that we shouldn't want to be. <laughs> we should desire the work of God's law in us. And so check this out also. The love of God transforms us. That is what John is describing in verse 5. There's the but there. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is what? Perfected. What is he getting at? There's a lot going on here. First, understand the grammar. Whoever keeps his word, it's in the present tense. It just describes this ongoing daily desire of one's heart. And, and notice John doesn't say whoever keeps his commandments, right? Like he said before. He says whoever keeps his word. Why is that? Well, God's word is far more than just his commandments. His commandments are part of his word. But God's word gives us all of his promises, all of his hopes for his people, all of his plans for restoration and redeeming this broken and fallen world. 
In a sense, God's word is this gospel message that has captured our hearts. That, that, go, that though mankind is turned from God to live for self, God has come down to gather for himself a people. I say it regularly, but what, remember the big theme of the Bible from the beginning to the end? The whole theme of the Bible is in God's words when he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's relational. And to make that possible, the Son of God came down to earth in the flesh to redeem those whom God calls to himself. So we keep this word, we press it into our lives, and we keep pressing it in, and it transforms us over time. That is what John is getting at when he writes, the love of God is perfected. How so? I think John means this. Not that we are perfect, like, right, you know, you're perfect in how you love God. No, but it's more like this, that the more we live in relationship with God, the more that we treasure his word and keep the word of God and experience his fatherly love, and the more we love God and, and desire to honor him with our lives, but also, right, we continue to sin, we confess our sin every week, but also the more we see how we continue to fall short in obeying his commands, and then return to the cross again, and each day his mercy and grace is there, what happens when this takes place in our lives? Well, the more our love for God is what? Perfected. Do you see how that works? This is the life that Jesus brings us into. I hope you see it's good. So do you know God? If you're here today and you think you know God, or at least enough about God, that you don't think you need to obey his commands, then you don't know God, and the truth is not in you, and you're living a lie. Those aren't my words. Because to know God is to love him, and when you love God, his commands are not burdensome. They're a delight. And so if this characterizes you this morning, do this. Meditate upon God's word. See how you fall short in his commands. See how you need his forgiveness. And then turn to Christ. Find forgiveness. Find welcome into God's family. And begin the journey of growing in love for God. For the Christians here, and I think that's most of us, perhaps it would be good to consider how well we live out this relationship with God. It is true that Christians can downplay the importance of honoring God by our obedience we can presume upon God's grace, right? We can live like Carol accuses us of living with a get-out-of-hell-free card. Perhaps this morning as we gather for communion, you and I can recommit our hearts to God, that we would love and delight in him, and that we would delight in his law and in his word. Those who truly know God delight to live in obedience to his commands. Do you see that? So we've seen the link between knowing God and obeying his commands. Now, let's see the link between knowing God and loving as God loves. Brings us to our second and final point, which is the love test. Listen, you cannot say you know God and lack Godlike love. I'm not saying you 
can't grow in it. We all need to grow in it. But God's, God's love towards us has an effect on us that we cannot help but love like God does. And so I think the big question before us then is this. It's, well, how does God love? <laughs> With what kind of love does God love his children? The outsiders who were pressing into these churches in Asia Minor bragged about how much they knew of God, but it appeared that they lacked love for the members of the church. Can you imagine what it must be like when they come into this church and they're telling people, we've got the secrets and you don't? Perhaps some of the faithful members in the church were pushing back at these false teachings. And so these proto-Gnostics, perhaps they were being cruel or demeaning to some members in the church. Perhaps they talked down to some or ridiculed some. John wants his readers back then and us today to realize that, that such lack of love in the body of Christ evidences that, that you don't really know God. In fact, that they are, these people are not walking in the light, that they're, in fact, walking in darkness. Verse 9 through 11, we read, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John's point is this. He's saying that you, you cannot say you know God and then not love like God. And how does God love? God loves differently than we human beings tend to love. I'm not saying we can't love like God. I'm saying our tendency, our fallen nature, our brokenness that we all share as human beings, we tend to love conditionally. A man and a woman stand up on their wedding day and they promise to have and to hold and to, to love from that day forward no matter what, no matter what. And then they push cake in each other's faces and we all laugh. But then the husband's life is wrapped up in his work or his expensive toys. And the wife is wrapped up in her cares and her concerns. And they start noticing the other person isn't behaving the way in which they prefer or like. And so their spouse isn't living up to their expectations. And they withhold love or kindness until they see changes, which likely won't come, right? This is the type of love that says, I'm not giving until I have gotten. That is how we human beings tend to love. We love those who are easy to love. We love those who are part of our country club. Uh, we love those who are close to us. We love those who are very much like us. And we tend to love conditionally. But this is not how God loves. God's love is so spectacularly wonderful, it's called unconditional love. God loves the unlovable. He gives mercy and grace to those who what? Deserve condemnation. God loves those who are far from him. Far, far, far from him. If we're honest, listen, none of us are deserving God's favor, let alone his lavish love. And yet somehow, God is able to love us while at the same time, listen, not overlook our sin. 
God doesn't push our sin under the carpet, and yet he still loves us. How is that? This is where you turn in your Bible to uh, John, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And John describes what God does with our sin that enables him to love us unconditionally. We're going to cover this in a few weeks. But here's what we read in 1 John 4, verse 9. Listen, please. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world, listen, so that we might live through him. What a promise. He goes on to say, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loves us, what should the result be? We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. I've not seen God. Have you seen God? If we love one another, though, God abides in us, and his love is what? Perfected in us. There it is again. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son. The message of Christianity is astounding. It says, yes, your sin is great. Don't overlook it. Don't act like it's not there. But God's love triumphs over your sin. God doesn't ignore it, no. A sacrifice takes place that removes your sin from you and actually places it upon God's son. Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Listen, unconditional love, the love that God has, is costly. It's hard work. It's a self-sacrificing love. Now listen, John wants us Christians to understand something. Because God has loved us this way, we are to love others this way. Especially our brothers, the brethren, that's, that's language for fellow church members in the body of Christ. So here's where it gets real, guys. Let me ask you a question. Christians in the room, when someone in the church offends you, it's possibly been me in the past, when someone in the church offends you, what is your go-to response? I mean, honestly, what is it? Is your first inclination to rejoice that this brother or sister is forgiven in Christ just like you? Or is your first inclination to judge and perhaps even revile? Sadly, we Christians tend to judge others. Oh, most of us at the time when we're doing it, we don't think we're judging. Far from it. People judge others, and they, they think, though, that they're defenders of the law of God. But what happens? They're angry. If you're angry, there's a sign that the love of God is not at work in your heart in that moment. Does that make sense? If you are riled up over someone else's sin, and it's not a righteous anger, then guess what Paul, John is saying here? John is saying, you are walking in darkness, and the truth is not in you. Why? Because Christians are people who have experienced a radical love. And therefore, we love others with a radical love. We don't get angry at others' sins. We go to the cross. We become thankful that God's mercy covers all of his people, including that person. You know, 
Usually it isn't new Christians who do this, right? Baby Christians are quick to remember how much grace they've received from God. It's the older Christians who tend to get angry at the sins of others, and they roll their eyes in disbelief and disgust. Sadly, it's a sign that the love of God is not being perfected in them. Listen, Christian, do, you, do not downplay this reality. Don't be so quick to think this is someone else's problem. Listen, if you witness your brother or sister falling in temptation or living with some sort of sin pattern in their lives and your go-to response is self-righteous anger, well, then know this. You are not walking in the light. You are walking in darkness. In fact, John equates your lack of Christ-like love to hate. (laughs) Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But you say, I don't hate him. Understand this. John uses these contrasting words of light and darkness, of truth and lies, love and hate to highlight the black and white nature in God's economy. Christian, if you fail to show love, to show your brother or sister in Christ that the same love that God has shown you, then there is a darkness operating upon you. You have forgotten your first love. Return to the cross. Meditate upon God's love for you anew and afresh. And then look upon your brother or sister with eyes of grace. This is why John says in verse 6, he says what he does. What does he say? Whoever abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you've been saved by Jesus, called into a discipleship relationship with Jesus, then the, the, the work of Jesus in our, on our lives is we become more and more like him in how we walk. And how did Jesus walk? Trust me, Jesus saw the failings of others. He wasn't blind to it, but he loved his own nonetheless. When you read the gospel accounts, you see that Jesus, yes, he continually condemned the self-righteous rule keepers. You know who they are, right? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. He had harsh words for them. Whitewashed tombs, he called them. But not so his dearly beloved disciples. He has great patience with them and with us. He calls them ye of little faith ones, right? But he stands by them and loves them and nurtures their faith and he watches them grow. And so my friends, it, if this is how Christ has walked, then let us walk in the same way in which he walked. How does this challenge you? I know it challenges me. Do you see how we cannot say we love God while we withhold love for others? Do you see that this kind of love, it's costly? It's unconditional? This is a love where you have to move towards someone else and not wait for them to come to you. Do you see how God's love triumphs, triumphs over your sin? And from this humility, are you able to love and serve others as Christ has loved and served you? This is what it looks like to walk in the light. So today we've been challenged by the question, 
do you know God? And we've seen that knowing God is not just knowing things about God, but knowing him relationally. And we studied the two tests that John has laid before us, the obedience test and the love test. When you know God, you long to obey him. It's the desire of your heart, even though you fail at it. And, and, when, you, and when you know God, you love others as God loves you. Not that you do it perfectly, but you long to do it. And when you don't do it, you repent of it, and you ask forgiveness of others. As we approach the Lord's table in a few minutes, let us meditate as we're here upon what this Lord's Supper declares to us. This supper declares to us that God is good and that he is loving and that he has come to rescue us from our sin and that we now belong to his cherished family. To receive the cup, to receive the bread, it signifies that you don't just know of God or believe that he just merely exists. No, to receive the supper signifies that, that, that you love God and he loves you. And that you delight in him, that he is your heavenly father. It, it signifies that you take pleasure in him. That your joy comes from God. That your hope for all eternity comes from the one who's called you to himself. It's a sign that your life is it's bound up in Christ. So as you receive the Lord's Supper, take time to meditate upon God's love for you in Christ. And then declare back to God your love for God and your desire to keep his word and experience that your love, your love for God over time is being perfected more and more. And also consider this. We don't take this meal alone in our homes. We, we take it together as God's people. Why? So Because so, this meal signifies that each person here who comes forward with you is just like you. Oh, yeah, maybe their stories are a little bit different. Maybe they struggle more or less with sin and temptation. But they share in Christ with you. And it's all by God's grace. And God sees you and delights in you through Christ his son. And so, too, God sees them and he delights in them through Christ his son. We share in this together. So as we come to the Lord's table, maybe, maybe behold each other. Maybe look at each other with eyes of grace. May we cherish one another. And yes, may we forgive one another. For this is how Christ walked. And this is our walk too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know you. Oh, we wish we knew you better. We confess our love towards you is not perfected yet. We know that our love falls way short. And yet we know that our hope that is placed in you, that, 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 that this hope that we have rests not in how much our love is towards you, but rather how much your love is towards us through Christ. And so with that, we rejoice. We're so thankful for what this meal signifies to us. It signifies that we belong to you, and nothing can take that away. We cherish your word. We desire to live in obedience and with love. 
In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.